So, who has some thoughts you might like to share to start things off with? Thoughts. I haven't. You weren't supposed to be thinking all day. Now's your chance. <laughs> Maybe some thoughts on uh, the things we talked about earlier today or last night or the night before. Yes? Um, I don't know if, if this is a, a relevant question. Uh, objects that I try to do mm-hmm. and uh, and it is extremely elusive it's like chasing a ghost yes and uh, and and but it seems like the mind is is where the uh, the conscious uh, the conscious and the sense thought the sense have some kind of contact but then, you know, that location is also extremely elusive because that just, you know, it comes down to just a nerve impulse. And, mm-hmm. and you know, what I perceive as the location is, mm-hmm. is really nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, there are, <clears throat> what I hear you saying is that when you look for the mind, you find certain qualities or properties or functions that are associated with the mind, but you can't really locate any, any place to pin that down to. Yeah. It's very, very elusive, very fluid. Yeah. Very fluid. It doesn't exist in any fixed point. Yeah. And it doesn't have any natural characteristic, you know, like per- permanent characteristics. In any, well, yes, that's that's very good. In any given instant, the characteristics that are present are what? They're They're changing, yeah. Well, they're changing. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they are... Um, what, what is the one constant in all of the exploration of mind you found so far? There's no constant. <laughs> There's no constant. Uh, none, none at all? Just when I thought, you know, I kind of start to get a role, get an understanding of where it is at, and, and that's not it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's very good. So, you have experiences when the mind is at rest, when it's not really doing anything, when there's a lot of tranquility, yeah. and you have experiences where the mind is doing something is producing a thought or uh, 
concept, a sense, a perception of some kind. Mm-hmm. Both. Right. Yeah, both. Right. And uh, so, uh, yeah, keep looking at those. That's wonderful. So, and I'll just point out that you can't, you know, you can't actually say what Michael said with certainty that the mind is elusive until you have a mind that uh, is sufficiently well trained in meditation. Otherwise, uh, you, you don't know whether it's the mind itself that's elusive or just the the uh, instability of your attention and all of the other distractions of every sort that are parading through your mind. It seems like we, we can tweak the amount of uh, a different aspect, like equanimity, uh, energy, and, uh, and uh, concentration, because we can kind of adjust the levels, because sometimes too much energy is not good, and I have to crank it down. It's kind of like when you mm-hmm. cook something, you don't want to use too little fire or too, too That's much true. fire. Yeah. fire. You had to tune it just right. That's right. And uh, and in the past, I, I didn't know how to tune it just right. Now I, I think I'm just trying to trying to pinpoint mm-hmm. what is what is a, a, a better better yeah. amount of energy or equanimity. Very good. Yes. Yes. Uh, I have a reflection regarding the report that I, I report to you. You know, watch the hummingbirds in front of uh, my head, you know, my eyes and that. And, and in addition, you're talking about the not-self, not, uh, not and the talk about self is we identify. And I recall that uh, instant feeling. I, I realized at that moment, even though I report, I, I don't get exact insight, but now I'm getting clear that uh, the self, in fact, is what I identify with. If I don't identify, I don't have a self. For example, at that point, when a hummingbird just like uh, fly in front of me and so close to me, mm-hmm. be honest, at, at that moment, I don't feel like I'm a human being. I feel like I'm a frog or a tree. You know, I, I move more than identify that way. So, so I get the sense is that, you know, the self is pretty much the mental uh, identification. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, when the time I lost that identification, I just watch the birth itself, mm-hmm. and I don't feel the self at all. You know. So and that my um, realization is that because at that time I cease all the identification, so mm-hmm. I see the, the the part. Yes. Okay. So now I'm more clear is that uh, make the feeling of self is because I attach that mm-hmm. identification. If I can separate that identification, then maybe easier for me to see. The, the self, the yes, I, you're right. That's very good. You see, and that's a <clears throat> that's one basis of insight into no self. It's actually one that uh, well, it's like so many of these things. It, it's always available, 
that you need to have the clarity of mind and the focus to become aware of it. But um, what Deborah is saying, and, and to put it in different words, is that she's realizing that the sense of self that she is so used to being identified with it's become apparent that it is uh, a, a, a mental formation, a concept, an idea, something that can be taken as an object of consciousness. You can be aware of your sense of self, and it seems very real, just as the other objects of your consciousness seem to you to be very real, in spite of their emptiness. And this is true of, uh, of the sense of self that we have. But the fact is that there are many moments where the sense of self is not there, if you look for them, if you begin to realize. And what this tells you that's important, the insight that grows from this, is that if the self really were what it appears to be, it would always be present. And the fact that it may be present or may not be present, can be, but isn't, tells you something very, very important about it. It it makes it really clear that it too is another mental formation that that consciousness can take as object and have a perception of and attach to. So it's no different than anything else in that regard. And... Also, the other thing that is important, uh, it's, it's subtle enough that it might not occur to you, but because of the reaction that our mind has to the idea, uh, you know, we're attached to self, and so the idea of loss of this self that we feel like we have and are attached to can seem like the most t- a terrible thing that can happen. But to be fully consciously aware of an experience in which there is no sense of self is to discover that it is, in fact, not a disaster at all. (laughs) That's quite wonderful, quite liberating, really. Yeah? Would you you agree with that? The the moment where there is no self, it's not a terrible thing at all. It's, 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 uh, you're actually without a burden. And that's one of the ways it's described in the, in the sutras, is uh, as a burden. And uh, the ordinary person attached to their sense of self is described as the bearer of the burden. And it's wonderful when you discover that, that uh, it's not something to fear, but it's a burden to be relieved of. I don't have a, a sense of a lost self yet. Yeah. Uh, however, I do have experience. I report to you about of the uh, realize non-exist. The past is whole non-exist. The past and, exist. Yeah, and also realize this is illusion. You know how illusion it is for the daily activities and all the thing. Uh, but I just wondering because when I go through that, I go through a bunch of emotion, mm-hmm. and and if I now I go through the other. Lost self, gonna get into that, or I will pass <laughs> more or more of that. 
Well, no, the the idea of the loss of self is uh, is disturbing and causes suffering only if you're still attached to the self. If you're still attached to the self, then it's very upsetting. Yeah, I guess my point is that I do agree with you is uh, no disregard the the dukkha I experience. I still feel that is very liberating, mm-hmm. you know, and that's worthy for all the dukkhas I go experience. Uh, just hopefully I can also see I how 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 much I resist in the dukkha, and yeah. hopefully next time when I experience and I can accept the dukkha and do not push away. Yes. Dukkha, suffering. What is suffering? I mean, you know, if you're if you're suffering, what what is happening? Is, is suffering it, suffering is an emotion, right? Yes. It's a it's a feeling. Where does where does this particular and it's it's only one emotion amongst many? Is that not true? It comes in different flavors. We have different flavors of suffering, but we have different flavors of other emotions as well. And I mean, seriously, ask yourself this question. Take a minute to reflect. Is there anything about suffering? That sets it apart, you know, in, in terms of its uh, intrinsic nature and properties uh, from other emotions, or is it in fact the case that it is just like fear or anger or happiness or sadness or or any other kind of emotion that you might like to compare it with? As if just just to be you know I, I said that suffering is just a, a one emotion amongst many yes. and it is not and I'm asking the question to make sure that uh, that you agree with that that it's one amongst many not one that is is different in some special way from all of the others yes, one of the many one of the many everyone agree with that suffering arises in the mind, yes. independently of any of uh, of the physical senses, the suffering itself. I mean, pain, of course, comes from physical senses, but we're talking about suffering, the emotion of suffering, rises in the mind. It's not dependent upon any of the other five senses. It's known entirely to the mind. It has a particular flavor to it, just as irritability and anger and other emotions do. It has an affective quality to it that's unpleasant. Richard, Deborah's talking about, and this morning we talked about fear of death. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And actually, I have a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. For no reason, whatever. I wake up in a fearful state. Yes. But then if I realize, you, call, you can call that emptiness or, the, or, or non-self. Mm-hmm. I really think my fear is social with self. If I don't put so much weight on myself, the fear goes away. Yes. Because my fears is because I'm so concerned about so-called quote the self. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So is that how I deal with it? So, but if you look at any emotion like that, and you see that as not not as something you identify with as as being that, but merely as uh, as a mental formation that has arisen due to causes and conditions. But it has arisen, and you don't need to identify it. Then immediately it becomes obvious. Well, the causes and conditions are something that you have some influence over, not the past causes and conditions, but those that are being generated in the present and in the future. So, so I the interesting about fear. Okay, you have an emotion, fear. And fear can cause suffering, right? So there you have one, one emotion that can lead to another, and they're related. Fear is, fear is unpleasant. Suffering is unpleasant. When you wake up in the morning with fear, it, it, it could come from thoughts and images in your mind. But sometimes we have fear that seems to arise for no reason at all. It's just completely non-specific anxiety that we don't know why we feel. It's just there. Uh, the same thing too with suffering. Uh, we would normally say, "Well, I'm suffering because of this," or "I'm suffering because of that." But uh, we have in our experience evidence that. Uh, Indeed, and this is the main point that I want to make, that suffering is just something that is produced by the mind, created by the mind. So think of your mind as a machine. Um, It does things according to uh, the, the way it's programmed and according to the information that it gets. So you have this mind machine and in a sense, everything your mind does is is very logical. You may not, not always know the logic behind what it does, but everything your mind does, it's you know, it's like your computer. It takes certain information that comes into it. It takes certain pre-existing information that's already in it. It processes the information, and then it produces an output. Suffering is one kind of output. It's one of the many kinds of output of the mind. Suffering is created by the mind. Yeah? I think also mirror our mind state. I mean, I'm just... I I look at the news and the world, people are starving. Mm -hmm. War-torn countries. 
Yes, there is. For them, my neighbor, this very well-to-do rich lady, she's suffering because the tree was not trimmed according to her two inch, according Mm -hmm. to her standard. She complained to me, and she's suffering. Yes. So it's it's all up to you. (coughs) That's right. Whether you're suffering or not. Uh, I see those very poor countries, those people can be very happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I just told her, I said, why are you so unhappy? Yeah. For the trees, two inch beyond your standard. <laughs> but they're yeah. suffering for her. Yes. And, and, and you say it's all up to you, but of course you can't say to her that the suffering is all up to you, stop. And you probably wouldn't but even... But you call it miserable. Yeah. But, and you probably <laughs> wouldn't even think of saying to somebody that had had no food for six days that, you know, just stop suffering. But, you know, we could probably go and amongst those people that are starving, find ones that are happier, much happier, than those who are very rich and have not ever had to do without anything in their lives. And that, that is the point. That uh, There are... There, there, there is pain and there is distress to the body. And being in uh, an area where there's war, uh, being subject to starvation, there, there are many people in this world that are in circumstances that cause, uh, that, that result in the stimulation of nerve endings and the cause of distress to their body. But there is a distinction which we can see by looking at the lady like your neighbor uh, and also looking at the reactions of different people who, with those circumstances, there is a distinction between uh, pain and physical distress and the mental suffering, the suffering that the mind creates. And there is not any sort of absolutely necessary relationship between the two. Pain does not necessarily need to produce uh, mental suffering. And the absence of pain certainly is not, uh, is, is no guarantee of an absence of suffering. Suffering is produced by a person's mind. And, and I don't know if I can confirm with the my my experience, and now I get a kind of, I don't know, this conclusion or not, I was wondering that uh, to minimize that suffering, mm-hmm. and, and <coughs> I, I, any practice is that to not resist that. If I resist, I, I, I for sure I know it's a tremendous uh, uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. But if I mentally willing to accept, mm-hmm. even though pain or, 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 or I'm happy, I'm present, just uh, embrace that and face it, then that will reduce that uh, suffering. Is That's that right. Correct? But, but I don't see that as the, like a war, that kind of suffering. I don't know, it's the mentally just mm-hmm. accepted war, then that can reduce suffering or not. I don't know, but personally, you know, in this kind of daily life, in the mind, I'm thinking is that the one of the maybe so far only way I, I can think of mm-hmm. 
Yes, Dinabi says that. And the, 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 the tremendous suffering I experienced a few weeks ago is because I resist. I see that very clearly. Right. So is that right? That's right, yes. The, the suffering that you experienced was proportional to your resistance. And I want to do, uh, what I want to do though is take us to looking at why your mind would produce that suffering. Mm-hmm. Why your neighbor's mind would produce that suffering. Why? why? Why do our minds do this? And But in, in order to have a completely uh, uh, accurate discussion of this, we do have to take into account people who have physical pain due to uh, to cancer or rheumatoid arthritis, for example. We have to take into account people who uh, are uh, in war or poverty, uh, things like that. Because, but in order, in order to take into account the entire breadth of suffering <clears throat> and to understand it, we also have to realize that, we also have to recognize that somewhere in, in, in this whole thing, uh, we need to distinguish between pain and the reaction of the mind to the pain. And then go beyond that and say, okay, other kinds of things that aren't necessarily painful in the strict sense of the word, but the mind also produces suffering in response to that. So pain and suffering are two different things. This, and this is something to be really clear on. Pain and suffering are two different things. And they are sometimes related, but they are not always related. And we can easily identify that there are many circumstances where there is suffering and there is no pain. We can also identify, but, we, but it's not so common, so we have to reflect a little bit to be about sure of this, but are there indeed circumstances where there is pain, but little or no suffering. And to help you understand that, consider uh, not, not some very severe pain, but some kind of physical experience that is distinctly <clears throat> uncomfortable, but not severe pain. And your reaction to it. You have had that kind of discomfort and you haven't minded it. Perhaps you had a good reason to undergo that kind of discomfort for one reason or another and you could honestly say you didn't suffer because of it. Is that not true? We've all had that experience. Now, a level of discomfort or physical pain that does not cause us suffering if it lasts for one minute, what happens if it lasts for an hour? We begin to resist it, and then we start to suffer. And something that you notice too, if you have a pain, and the thought comes into your mind, this is never going to end, what happens to the suffering at that point? Just right off the charts, right? Uh, even though even though it may be a nonsense thought, but that thought comes into your mind and all of a sudden the suffering accelerates greatly. Uh, the other thing that you might notice that happens is uh, you've got a pain 
and it's not bothering you that much, but then uh, there is the prospect of relieving the pain, and as soon as you start about start to think of not having the pain, that interval between having relief in sight and not having the relief actually realized becomes the suffering there becomes more acute. Um, so that's a few examples that we all experience. And we've also seen that, well, if we know people can disregard a lot of physical pain, not feel it entirely, if the circumstances that they're in cause them to be much more focused on something else. Uh, people in uh, uh, soldiers in war, uh, firemen, uh, rescue workers, things like this will often sustain injuries to themselves and not even really be aware of it because they are totally preoccupied <coughs> with everything else that's going on. And then when it stops, then they, they feel the pain. So you, uh, uh, the reaction of your mind to pain is extremely variable. Everything from uh, disregarding the pain <coughs> even though it may be a severe injury, to producing extreme suffering, even, even, though, the, even though the pain is minor. So, now do we have a whole picture here? <clears throat> you can have physical pain without suffering. You can have suffering without physical pain. And you can have the two together. But the suffering and the pain really are different, even though there is some connection between them. The connection is not absolute. And they are two different things. And the point here is that suffering comes from your mind. Nowhere else. 100%. Suffering is generated by your mind. It is produced by your mind. It is created by your mind. So you have to ask the question, why would my mind do that? <laughs> yes. Um, afternoon. After lunch, I went to the backyard and to do some walking. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard the saw in the, in the bush. So I tried to squat down and uh, to check out what's in the, in the bush. And I think it's a lizard. Mm-hmm. But the lizard jumps off. So suddenly it just scales. You understand that? Well, we just discovered, discussed about no self, I think. And I think if really an enlightened person, can he still prevent this kind of a, a feeling? For our hands, you know, a, a tiger jump out of on the wall, on the, on the road. Mm-hmm. So this kind of feel is, it's, it's a self-protect yes. behavior. <coughs> so mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's psychological factor can be removed or? It's a, uh, can be which? Can be removed. Can be removed. By, you know, realizing, yeah. by um, Yes, it can. Now, we have reflexes. You know, you have a simple reflex, like if you hit the tendon at your knee, your foot kicks out. A very simple reflex. It actually doesn't go past your knee. You know, that's, uh, well, I, I, it goes past, it doesn't go past your spinal cord. Nerve impulse goes up here and sends nerve impulse back and your foot kicks out has nothing to do with your brain and it's definitely nothing to do with your mind. 
we have many more complex reflexes. Uh, one example of reflex is that uh, if, uh, if, if I'm looking at Scott and there's a sharp noise over here, my eyes are reflexly going to move towards the, towards the sound. Reflexes don't disappear. Being, becoming enlightened isn't going to change reflexes. And uh, a Buddha that touches a hot pot, you know, is going to, uh, his hand's going to jerk back. Unless, unless he does it on purpose and doesn't intend to have it jerk back. Unless what? Unless he knows it's hot and doesn't, and he doesn't want to have that reflex, then oh, okay. he can suppress it. But so can you, right? You can touch something hot if you do it deliberately. We have, not all reflexes can we suppress, but some reflexes we can repress. And then there are instinctive reactions. To be startled is an instinctive reaction. Um, It would be more difficult to startle a Buddha because a Buddha has a higher level of mindful awareness and is uh, going to be more difficult to startle. But that kind of the, that kind of reflex reaction that is built into our nervous system of jumping back when something surprising happens, this is not actually originating in mind, as we would say it. This is really a function of the body, and it, 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 the center of the reflex may be in the brain or maybe in the spinal cord. And it may, may be a simple reflex, or it may be a very complex reflex, but it is to do with the body, not the mind. And so, the enlightenment of the mind will give a Buddha a will will cause a Buddha to react to certain kinds of circumstances uh, in different ways and have different degrees of control over them. But it's not it's not about changing the way the body functions, right? Yes? But there's a fear. Now, the feeling, the emotion of fear, you know, if you're startled and you jump back, that's a reflex. The emotion of fear uh, that comes up, that's generated by the mind. And that, that too, is part of what's programmed into us, but that's something that doesn't have to be there. You can change the program. Greed is something that's programmed into us. And aversion is programmed into us. We're born with a nervous system that predisposes us to crave that which is pleasurable and to seek to avoid that which is unpleasant. But if there is any point to this practice at all, it is that these, although these are born into us, these programmed responses can be changed. And fear falls into that category as well. So that amongst the changes that would take place in the mind of a Buddha would be those that would generate the emotion of fear in response to being startled by a sound or a sudden movement. You see what I'm saying? But that doesn't mean that you might not see a Buddha jump back when they're startled. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's fear. And likewise, when his cousin Devadatta tried to uh, kill the Buddha by rolling a stone down the mountain, you know, and uh, 
what happened is it hit another rock which kept it from hitting the Buddha but it split off and there was a sharp piece that lacerated his foot and according to the sutras it must have become infected because it was very painful for uh, some period of a couple of weeks so the Buddha's body still experiences pain but the Buddha doesn't need to experience the suffering that we're talking about in response to the pain and this, this is really the distinction we're trying to get down to is recognizing that the suffering that's produced by the mind is something that can be that is is different from and can be affected differently than than the things of the body. Yes. Uh, in the literature, there are some meditation practice like uh, go to the forest or go to the, the tomb, the cemetery to yeah. practice meditation. Uh, I'm just wondering, is it practical? Because if I go to forest, I know maybe there's a snake, there's mm-hmm. animals, and uh, <coughs> I just close the eyes, and I'm saying, I can set my mind mm-hmm. now. So what's the purpose for that? It's just conquer the fear? Or what? <coughs> it's, a, it, it's actually a method that's used to help people to develop concentration and awareness, is to go and meditate in the forest where there's dangerous animals. And... Uh, uh, very effective, I gather. I haven't tried it myself. <laughs> well, what's, the, what's the difference between meditating in the middle of the night in downtown LA and the forest? It's just as dangerous. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, but the thing is that uh, uh, in the in the night we'll have to work even harder to uh, uh, overcome our uh, the distractions that our mind produces. You know. Uh, so we should go, go to downtown LA and meditate in the middle of the night with homeless people yeah, right. roaming around yeah. people with um, drugs. <laughs> although, although, you know, there is, I, I, like if you, uh, if somebody said that there were two uh, tigers known to be man-eating tigers, uh, maybe one of them had rabies and they always came by this particular pond to drink every night, it would be absolute foolishness to suggest that you go and meditate by that pond. But if there was some pond where two healthy, well-fed, normal tigers commonly came to drink, you could go and sit there and meditate, and if you didn't bother them, they wouldn't bother you. And that's the difference. I, somehow I feel like there's certain parts of L.A. that would be more like where the rabid tigers are. <laughs> I mean, you would, it would be an invitation for somebody, like having a big sign. Please come, mug me. <laughs> I have great wealth on my body. You may have to cut me apart to find it. But, <laughs> you know. but uh, yeah, to, there is, <clears throat> it seems to me extreme. And. Uh, Definitely not necessary. We all don't need to go and meditate in a forest with danger, dangerous animals to be successful in our practice. But that is the idea of that. It's just, it's just put yourself in a situation where the distractions, particularly those produced by your mind, are greatly amplified. And, uh, but presumably you would do it with sufficient sense that you don't put yourself in a situation <laughs> you're, you're, you're seriously risking destruction of your life yeah 
we talk about all these uh, uh, the pain, the mm-hmm. suffering, and uh, uh, we wanted to uh, eliminate the resistance by practicing our mindful awareness mm-hmm. and uh, hoping that uh, we practice enough to attain the wisdom and uh, get to the enlightenment. To me, it seems that uh, in the equanimity, it's not just uh, we try to eliminate everything. Uh, for example, uh, in our daily lives, let's say uh, you know uh, I forgot to do something causes something to be delayed and then cause some other people to suffer, including myself. Um, But I could choose that uh, I don't really care Mm -hmm. and let the other people suffer or like, you know, myself is not suffering. But I don't think that's the wisdom that we should uh, uh, be considered. No, not at all. so as far as the equanimity, and uh, obviously we're looking at uh, the moment that when it's happened, and all these karma and uh, uh, the previous reaction that we took to cause us basically maybe the pain and suffering to occur. Mm-hmm. So what what uh, prevent us to uh, to uh, I guess to eliminate or even uh, decrease the suffering on, on that uh, that scenario I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> that's what uh, that's what I'm trying to get to here, asking you the question: Why do our minds create the suffering? There are a number of things we can do about suffering. One of which, immediately, that you can learn to do is just to the degree that you stop resisting pain, you can reduce the amount of suffering you experience um, as a result of that pain. Also, when you have mental suffering that is due to other things, if to the degree, you know, and, and this is not something that's easy to do, but the degree to which you can resist the reality that you're suffering in reaction to, overcome the resistance to that reality, you can reduce the suffering. You know, uh, I I think without exception, everybody in this room will have experienced the suffering of uh, loss that comes when you have an emotional attachment to a person who doesn't reciprocate that. Right? You know what I'm talking about? You've all had that at one time or another, that, that you uh, liked or loved or cared about somebody, but they uh, they dumped you or they weren't interested, and you suffered because of that. That's just an example. I could have used, picked almost anything, but that's an example that's pretty common. Now, if you think about it, okay, all, you can suffer terribly about this. Some people, you know, they'll lose weight. They won't go to work or school. 
they'll be terribly upset. They feel like their life should. Some people even try to commit suicide over something like this. But you look at it. There's how many billion people in the world? Half of them are the opposite sex, and a huge proportion of them are about the right age. And there's probably a lot of them that are a whole lot more attractive in one way or the other. (laughs) It's totally, totally illogical, but there's all this suffering. The fact is that, you know, I wanted to be with this person, and this person doesn't want to be with me. And if I can accept that, which eventually I will, there's no more suffering. And I'm happy again, and uh, I'll meet somebody else. But, you know, this is true of so much. So, yeah, one of the immediate things we can do about suffering is learn to understand the mathematics of it, you know, that uh, the more resistance, the more, the, more, the more suffering there is. That's one thing. The second thing that we can do has to do with karma. And this is very important, and that is to understand how we generate the, the karma for suffering. Now, karma means causality, and there's different ways in which we can use this term. Um, but let's just let's use it in, in, in just a very general and very simple sense that all of our intentions, thoughts, speech, and action produce various kinds of consequences. I'm not talking about anything that is mysterious or difficult to understand. It produces obvious consequences. We do things and there are ramifications. They say that when a butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong, they can cause a thunderstorm in London. You cannot perform any action that doesn't have consequences. Speech. Speech has consequences. And how often have you said something and you had no idea the impact that it was going to have on somebody else or the way it's come back to you? Speech has consequences. Your thoughts and intention, even if they don't lead to any overt speech or action, they condition your mind. And so the suffering that you experience in your life is obviously going to be a result of karma in this sense. Things are going to happen to you that you committed actions which played a significant role in causing these things to happen to you. Or you said things. The other thing, too, though, is that in your thoughts and intentions, you're creating the programming in your mind that is going to cause your mind to function in a particular way which has something to do with the things that you do, and it also has more directly to do with the way that you perceive the circumstances you find yourself in. Um, it can be direct. You can, uh, you can condition yourself to be very sensitive and therefore experience a lot of suffering. Or it can be indirect. You can condition yourself to be uh, arrogant and thoughtless of uh, uh, other people in your attitude, and uh, eventually you're going to find yourself as an isolated and lonely person, and you're going to suffer as a result of it. But 
you know, I, I, I'm just not trying to cover it. I'm just trying to show you the general picture that, that yes, so much of your suffering is related to karma. And that's something that you can work on too. So there's two things that you can do about suffering. One is learning to understand how it functions immediately. Second is to understand the role that you play in what you experience, good or bad. But there's a third, and that's getting down to the root of understanding why your mind generates suffering in the first place and what are the factors that determine when and how it's going to generate suffering in your life. Do you see what I'm getting at here, this third thing? Okay. Everyone that we know experiences suffering. And some more than others. Some people are naturally happier than others and less prone to suffering, and some people are more prone to suffering. But everyone suffers. So we can take it for granted that we come into this world with a mind that's predisposed to suffering. So we look at what is, what actually is the nature of suffering and why would it be that way? Well, what do you do when you're suffering? What is the first thing you, you do if you can? If I'm standing on your toe and you're suffering, what's the first thing you do? Open a soda pop? Ask somebody to change the channel on the television? You try to get my foot off your toe, right? <laughs> suffering causes us to take action. You know, it causes us to try to change things. And it's a very important part of, of, of how we survive. And that's why we see uh, in, uh, uh, in the world of uh, sentient beings at every level, they're all prone to suffering because suffering is one of those mechanisms that makes them do something to change their circumstances, basically to avoid the suffering. The other thing that they, causes them to do something is when they experience pleasure and they have the urge to try to sustain or repeat or, or uh, somehow or another get more of that same pleasure. So it's a built-in mechanism that serves you as just as a biological being, not taking into account whatever degree of intelligence and mindful awareness that you may have. Okay. Um, and as a matter of fact, if you consider, uh, if you could just get your mind to be less vigorous in its production of suffering, you could get the same message sufficiently and figure out for yourself that you needed to make changes without the level of suffering that is often present, right? But it is a basic mechanism that's built into us. That the mind generates the mental state of suffering to motivate us to make changes. Uh, and we make changes because we are unsatisfied with the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, if we think already, if we think in terms, <laughs> if we think in terms of uh, what is would be 
absolutely ideal for ourselves as an individual organism, uh, how likely is it that it would ever be attained? I mean, is from from just this very simplest point of view, you know, things could always be better, couldn't they, in some way? And not only that, it is the nature of the world, it's filled with other beings that are trying to do the same thing, and limited resources and everything else. So basically we're in a situation where we're always going to be dissatisfied. And so our mind's always going to be generating suffering to try to, in one way or another, improve the circumstances of uh, you as an independent, separate entity from all of the rest. You might recognize a familiar theme starting to arise in this. Right? So, any biological organism, any assemblage of cells and tissues, any assemblage of the four elements that has sentience, in order to uh, to succeed and grow and prosper and reproduce itself, is is going to benefit by having a mechanism internal to it that drives it always to uh, make changes in its circumstances that will bring more resources to it and so forth, and to avoid suffering and uh, or avoid pain and, uh, and uh, the things that are harmful to it, right? So, I'm going to stop here tonight and we'll carry on with this, but just, you get the picture, you know, it's not a joke to be, you know, when the Buddha said these five aggregates of clinging, clinging are suffering. They are suffering. They're the nature of suffering. But the word he used was dukkha. And suffering is a word for the extreme form of this basically unsatisfactoriness. These five aggregates of clinging, this body and the mind that you have, and not just you, but the dogs and cats and fish and lizards and everything else, its nature is to experience dissatisfaction. It's programmed in. So we'll carry on from that point next time. Trees don't have feelings, but they have the same compulsions, you know. They suffering. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I know you, you, you spoke of a, a lot about resistance. Uh, the equation goes that pain times resistance equals suffering. Mm-hmm. But uh, the pain itself uh, can can be overcome with concentration too. Um, you you mentioned uh, some examples already. And then, you know, if you say, for example, your right foot is aching, you can focus on the right foot, and then mm-hmm. naturally the brain is not going to register any pain. But, um, but also, uh, I have some experience that when I observe the pain very, very directly, uh, the pain disappears because I observe, uh, it seems like the observation makes me uh, see things from a different pers- perspective. And then that perspective kind of over overtakes the sensation of the pain. So although I'm, I'm supposedly looking at the same thing, but the thing is that uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like how, how you describe like cup is is so, both solid and empty. 
you know, if, instead of focusing on the empty part, focusing on the solid part, and vice versa. So when when the mind becomes very focused, it seems like the pain can 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 disappear. Mm-hmm. So of course, the best way is to eliminate the resistance. But but before somebody gets there, um, I guess to eliminate yeah. pain, they can yeah. practice concentration as well. Yes. Well, concentration is that's actually is a way to to overcome the resistance. Yes. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So basically, where we're going to continue with this is, what are the things that we can do to use all three strategies to deal with suffering? But the most important one is coming to understand how it is that our minds are programmed to produce suffering, and if we can change that programming in our minds, we will be completely free from suffering. Yes. Then we don't need. It's no longer a question of not resisting anymore. Yeah. And it's no longer a question of uh, worrying about the, the karmic propensities that we generate, but we change the mechanism that causes suffering internally. Well, it seems like, you know, when, when we're meditating, we're already conditioning the mind to, yeah. to, to replace the, the uh, faulty program or the better yeah. program. That's right. Because we know that uh, resistance in our practice all those resistance, all those clean, clearly causes mm-hmm. more suffering. And, and letting go of that is clearly uh, the way to, to happiness. And, and so the, the mind naturally gets, gets reconditioned. So it doesn't even require uh, like, a, like a one aha moment. Gradually the mind is getting reprogrammed already. It is already. That's true. Yeah. Mm. Okay. But, but there's, there's more that can be done. Too. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's, you know, uh, about this Buddha Dharma, it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. From the very beginning, it produces positive results and benefits. And then as you progress, those just amplify and amplify. But when you reach the final goal, then all the problems are solved once and for all. So it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. So, yes? So the person gets enlightenment, uh, is still falling in love something or somebody? It's a lot of illusion, isn't it? So when, when somebody becomes enlightened, then they are completely free of the desires that underlie the kind of love that we call falling in love. But what happens is that they continue to act out of out of love, out of uh, unselfish and uncondic- uh, uh, unconditioned love, and they have an infinite. Uh, supply of it. No, well, when, the reason I ask you because of one guy, I everybody said he got enlightenment, mm-hmm. and the girl fell in love with him, mm-hmm. and then he said, "Okay, you can date with me, but you cannot fall in love with me." Uh, once you fall in love with me, and we, you cannot see me anymore. And one day. He really died. 
and the girl got like crazy. I just wonder, it's not there, because he yeah. knows there are no self. He knows, you know, just like play uh, a <laughs> movie. But the girl doesn't. Mm-hmm. How this one works? <laughs> uh, well, it doesn't sound to me like he no. was uh, uh, acting fully out of compassion there in a fully enlightened way. Yeah. But these are people said, I, I didn't see well, I, I, I think there could be some misinterpretation because I know a lot of the people, they want to give good influence to, to the other person. They want to interact with the other person, not because they're trying to trick the other person. They're hoping that through interaction they can influence yeah. this person in a positive way. Right. But the thing is, I don't think, it's, I don't think that, you know, an enlightened person by any means would will want to trick another person, like, like how that is described, I wouldn't buy that into that story whatsoever. I, I wouldn't think so either. I mean, if that's, if that's the whole part of the story, then uh, I would question. <laughs> yeah, I think there's got to be some misunderstanding. Be no. <laughs> or unless this person is not enlightened. <laughs> well, just because people think somebody's enlightened doesn't mean that they are. Even just because somebody thinks they're light enlightened themselves doesn't mean that they are. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, really, it's, it's not fair if, it's a pers- if the person really got enlightenment mm-hmm. and not or not. Oh, the, the way he uh, act, maybe the other part doesn't understand. Yeah. So how this one works? <laughs> I'm not sure I followed that. I didn't. I quite understand what you're saying. Okay, one person really get that's Buddha, right? He's the Buddha, right. Okay. Another is not. Right. But he or she love him or mm-hmm. her. So how this one works? Well, the Buddha can't help if somebody yeah. admires him. You know, it's... Well, there could be a lot of people that, that love him, but they should... You know, if if they find themselves loving him in the sense of uh, wanting to possess him, then that's just their their own mind acting no differently than if they wanted to possess anybody else, and they happen to choose choose somebody who it's <laughs> completely inappropriate for. Them. So I mean, it's what's the difference between that and somebody who decides that they fall in love with a famous movie star that is never going to Or in love with a gay person, you know, this or person a is not going yeah. to yeah. switch yeah. forever. <laughs> Maybe that's a good example, yeah. Maybe that's a good example. But you see what I mean. That's coming entirely from that person. But the, the Buddha, the enlightened person, should absolutely do anything that's in their power to help that person to let go of that attachment because it only is going to cause them suffering. Or if they're very skillful to, because they have that attachment, help them to overcome it in such a way that they're not just overcoming that attachment, but they understand the nature of that kind of attachment entirely so that they are spared for the rest of their existence from this sort of unhappy situation. That's what a Buddha would do, I think. (laughs) It's called skillful means.
When a Buddha sees when a Buddha sees that somebody is suffering because they have a wrong understanding or a wrong view, which actually the world is full of people that are suffering because they have wrong views. But so when the Buddha focuses focuses his attention on any one of them, his primary concern is to do whatever he can to help that person to alter their view that is the cause of their suffering. And that's called skillful means. The Buddha uh, and, and you know any, any person with any degree of wisdom uh, should always be practicing skillful means that, uh, to, help, to help others to overcome the views that they hold that cause their suffering. You know, and uh, when you see people that are not doing that, then, you know, well, it's not our place to judge, but, uh, you know, you do have to question if, if they, the degree of wisdom that others may assert that they have, if they really have it, if they're not practicing skillful means. So. This is storing the sutra, Harmony. Which one are you thinking? I'm thinking about. Uh, Anand was uh, trying to ask the lower class in India, a woman, Sutra, mm-hmm. for, for water in the well. And she said, uh, Venerable, uh, I'm a very lowly class. Because Indians, they have five class. The lowly class cannot talk to the other class. So I'm the lowest class, and, and you, you are a <coughs> higher class, and you should not drink my water. And uh, Anna said, uh, I'm not asking for your class, I'm asking for water to drink. So he drank the water from her. And she thinks she, she feel, uh, fell in love with Anna. So uh, she went to the Buddha and said, uh, I saw this monk, Anna, and your disciples, and I'm falling in love with him. And I want you allowed him to marry me. <laughs> So Buddha turned around, you know, gave him a lecture. <laughs> so she became enlightened. <laughs> Much better, yeah. <laughs> that is much better. <laughs> well, that, you know, maybe that's what that that, that enlightened person was trying to do, except that he didn't, he wasn't successful in helping. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, remember, I, I said if this is all there is to the story, yeah, it could be that other, there might be other parts to the story that we don't know. So yeah. we should never, we should never judge. <laughs> we should never judge. But at the same time, we shouldn't be total fools. And just because everybody else says this person's enlightened, if you look at what they're doing and it doesn't make sense to you, <laughs> you have a right to, <laughs> to exercise your own discretion and judgment. All right. Without judging the person, but uh, judging your involvement. So, yeah. Okay. Yes? Please <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> I feel like uh, if if the person invited, we dignified. You know, you see a certain demeanor, dignified demeanor. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and my not quite my statement is that. If that really invited people, it won't cause the people fall in love with this invited person. Yeah, it, it, instead of this, is he will the people respect him instead of fall in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's always some people that just. <laughs> You know, I think there's some people that are just, you know, they uh, they have to fall in love with somebody that's absolutely impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's only when that other person is totally unavailable that they're even interested. <laughs> so, anyway, this was this was a, a good discussion. Let's end it here and let's take about a 10 minute break and then we'll come back and sit together.